Delighted to be here. Excited to be able to get back into Word of God to share it with you as we enter this Advent season. I've titled this series, The the Reason for the Season, and we're going to begin this morning with answering the question, why? What was the motive of God? And before we do that, let me pray us in. Father God, thank you for this time, this season, that we do come to celebrate uh, the greatest gift of love that has ever been given in the history of the world. We want to do so with integrity in reading and studying your word, and we want to do so by inviting the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and, and, and change us, continue to work and change us. And we want to be mindful, too, in our nation, even in our world, there's still a fallout and a resurgence of this virus that in some cases is a nuisance, and in some cases it is deadly. And so we pray against it. We have been for months and months and months, and we do not understand why it continues to do what it does. It may be a, a punishment on our world or our nation for its sin. Could be that. No question about it. Could be the, the fallout of man and just uh, the evil that's in the world. We don't really know for certain, but we do know this. You can destroy it. You can stop it. You can bring healing to those who are affected. And so we will not stop or cease to pray for that until we know that this has completely dissipated um, because that's what you've told us to do. And so we beg you now, we beg you now, we implore you, O God, Jehovah Rapha, the God, only God who can heal and heal completely physically and spiritually, come and heal us in every area of our lives that needs healing. And, and, And be with us now by your spirit as we study your word and begin to understand why why you did some of the things you did, and why we are where we are. So guide us and direct us for Christ's sake. Amen. Okay, let's get going. We've got a lot to cover here. Now, I'm going to talk for just a minute about the origin of Christmas. Just the word. And and maybe most of you know this. Uh, Some of us do not, or some do not. Christmas What's really, it's pretty simple. There are a lot of different things. There's a lot written on it. You can go study that for yourself. Just Google it and you'll get a number of different answers. But by and large, most agreement is around the fact that it's Christ and mass. And you can look up the words, the Greek and Hebrew words for mass and what it means. But it just meant a service, an honoring or a celebration. And so Christmas, the Christ mass was just that. And in the Catholic Church, I'm Protestant, and I know a little bit about the Catholic Church, not a lot, but, you know, different saints were celebrated. They were given their day for a particular saint. And so it was decided that, obviously, if, if these saints, the Old Testament saints and some of these other saints are going to have a day of celebration, which is a service and a mass in which they took communion, or they called the Eucharist, then Christ should as well. And so Christ mass or Christmas is what that became. And so it was a day they celebrated You can also study on why it ended up being December 25th, and a lot of research went into uh, one particular individual tracing it back and believing that that was the nine-month period from which um, the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary, and it was December 25th, and so that's how it landed. It happened to be in a season of a lot of other pagan holidays, and as I've shared before with you about Easter, a lot of Christian holidays, Christmas as a celebration and Easter as a celebration came out of pagan holidays. And that's why I don't refer to it as Easter anymore. Having studied that, 
Um, I call it Resurrection Sunday, as many others do. But, but nonetheless, we end up with this word Christmas coming out of Christ and Mass, or a service or time to just celebrate Jesus and his birth. And that's the simple origin of it. Now, there are many in this world, Christians, who won't celebrate Christmas. They believe it is pagan, and we should not celebrate in the way that pagans have celebrated. And so you can get into all kinds of stuff about that. You can go, you can drive yourself nuts if you want to Google and study these things, because you'll see so many different opinions on it. And that is not the purpose today. I wanted to introduce this by just sharing with those who'd never really thought about or given any uh, study into where'd the word itself come from. Because a lot of times, like in the, in the Spanish language, mas means more. doesn't mean more of Christ. It means Christmas. It was a service to celebrate the birth of Christ. So with that little background, what I want to do is get into understanding some of the why behind it and the motive of God. Now, this is a four-part series the Holy Spirit has given me. We're going to do part one today, which is the motive. The next week, we're going to deal with the message and then the messenger, and then the means by which he carries it out. So those are the four parts we're going to study this month. Let's get started. Earlier this year, as we were doing part of our study in the series on understanding the God of the Bible, I took you through creation week in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I want to say again that I am a biblical creationist. <coughs> Excuse me, and you're going to have to forgive me because occasionally this uh, cough is going to surface, and I apologize for that. I'll do my best, and I've got a drink over here to sip on if I need to do that. But in, I, I'm a biblical creationist, which means what? I believe that the Genesis account is true, just as it said. I believe it was a week, that there were seven days. So that's what I want you to know. That is my belief and bias, if you will, and I teach from that biblical perspective. We have a perfect holy God. Those first four words, we talked about that. Um, in the beginning, God, Barabar, Sheet, Elohim. Remember, we went through those words, what they meant. In the beginning, God, perfect, holy God, perfect, holy God existing three in one, that mysterious Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The perfect, holy God created a perfect world, perfect world. Everything that he did was, he said it was good. It was perfect. It was created in perfection. At the end of that, on day six, he created a man and then a woman in perfection to live in perfection in this perfect world he created in this garden paradise of total perfection. And he gave them complete stewardship over it. And he said, go be blessed and multiply and have a great life. And there's only one rule. We spent a lot of time drilling down on that. We will not today. But what was that rule? He simply said, you can't eat of the forbidden fruit of that tree over there. That's the only thing. You've got dominion over everything, over all of creation, over the animals, the plants, everything in existence. In my perfect world, you're created as perfect beings, man and then woman. That's it. That's it. It was a perfect setup. They were, if anyone was ever set up to be successful, it was Adam and Eve. But this one little thing that he told them they could not do, just like with our kids, just like us when we were little, if your mom or your dad said, don't eat that, don't you eat that last cookie, you can have anything over here you want to, you can eat some of the carrots or the celery, and you can eat this or that, some of these things that are good for you, the fruit, you have any piece of fruit that you want, don't eat that last cookie over there. What are we going to do? What are kids do? We go straight for that cookie. We go straight for that cookie. 
Well, we know in this case that there was there were fallen angels. A third of the angels we learn later on in Jude, way over toward the end of the New Testament, that Satan uh, rebelled against God and took with him a third of all the population of the angels, however many millions that may have been. We don't know. They are created beings as well. And angels, by the way, you need to know this because this is truth, biblical truth. Angels can take on the form of other beings, whether it be animal or people. And we know that from the Old Testament and the New Testament, where angels appeared to men. There's a lot of different examples throughout biblical history where angels took on the form of possessed men or women and spoke for God. Demons did the same thing, speaking against God or trying to tempt and tear people down. And that's what happened in the garden. So this serpent was simply possessed or embodied by Satan, the, the, the chief fallen angel. Satan was a really important angel, maybe like Michael or Gabriel, one of the archangels, but a very high-ranking angel. This is not science fiction, hocus-pocus nonsense. It's biblical truth. Study it and read it for yourself. So the serpent, we pick up in Genesis, the serpent now appears to Eve and begins to tempt her. So let's go through this. And by the way, when I told you that in Genesis 2, and that's verses 15 to 17, God said this to Adam, the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden to cultivate and keep it. And the Lord commanded him, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, one thing I want you to realize here, this is in Genesis 2, 15, 16, 17. In Genesis 3, 1, enters in Satan tempting Eve. Eve was created out of man in those verses at the end of Genesis 2. Eve was not there, was not present, was not created yet when God gave Adam that command, here's what you cannot do. This is the one thing that will get you killed. This will bring death into the world. Eve was not around. She had not yet been created. She's then created. We move forward into Genesis 3.1 and we see what's going on with Satan now possessing a serpent and tempting Eve and doing what he always does, speaking partial truths, just speaking part of the truth. So let me move through this quickly because we have a lot to cover. In that Genesis 3 world, I'm just going to move through some bullet points here and you can look up these verses. I'm looking at, we're going to go one through that whole chapter of three in verses one through five. The bullet point is this temptation begot pride. Temptation begot pride. Satan tempts Eve and it's like that comical old uh, redneck commercial. Oh, I want that. I want that. He talks about that fruit. He says, surely you won't die. And he twists the words of God. And again, she wasn't there when God spoke the words to Adam. And so she is deceived. And temptation begets pride. Pride begets disobedience. Not just I want that, but I can have it. I will have it. And I'll just take it. I'll just take it. As the old southern boy might say, well, I'll just get me some of that. And she did. Okay? And so that disobedience begot sin. So temptation begot pride. Pride begot disobedience. Disobedience begot sin, which was the defiance, disobeying God's command. That's what sin is. Doing what God told us not to do or not doing what God told us to do. And sin begot death, just like God promised uh, Adam that he would. That this sin, if you sin, if you do this one thing, it's going to bring death into your world. Now, the good news is right here at this point in verse 15, and remember, we went over this before. This is the first promise of God. And, and the theological phrase for it is called the proto-evangelium or the proto-evangelium, depending on how you want to pronounce it. 
Uh, it's a big, long word, and it simply means this. There was a promise of a Messiah that God told Satan that I'm bringing one in here who's going to bruise your heel, or you'll bruise his heel, and he'll bruise your head, and some translations say he will crush your head. That's that promise. The first, the very first picture of the Jesus, of the need for Jesus, of a Messiah coming, of a Savior coming, is right there in Genesis 3.15, about the third or fourth page of your Bible, okay? Then we see the first evidence of the mercy and grace of God being poured out on Adam and Eve in verses 21. In verse 21, we see this. There's, let me read that to you. I'm in Genesis 3 and verse 21. <clears throat> and then the Lord got, uh, no, excuse me. Uh, now the man called his wife Eve because she was mother of all the things that were living. Eve means mother of all that's living. In verse 21, we read this. After this fall, the Lord God, and after the fall and after the judgment, we read this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, Eve, and clothed them. Clothed them. Remember, we, they learned that they were naked. They went from being naked and unashamed to naked and ashamed, hiding from God. After the punishments are doled out, after God tells them what's going to happen, we see the first evidence of his mercy that he did not kill them right there on the spot in his grace and that he provided for them. And in this case, it said they clothed them in animal skins. And to get an animal skin, we have to do what? You have to sacrifice or kill that animal, which brings blood. This is the first blood sacrifice in, in the Bible, in history. And God did this for Adam and Eve so that he could make a way for them. He did not kill them physically at that time but they would die physically. He set them outside the garden and death came into the world. Not only physical death, but also spiritual death would come. And so that's the importance of that. God in his mercy and in his grace made a way, made a way for them by sacrificing animals, blood first blood sacrifice. But then again, like I said, we see that the, that the wrath and justice of God must also be satisfied, must also be satisfied. And we see that in verse 23 and 24, when God drives them out. And therefore the Lord God sent out Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the land from which he was taken. So God drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. No one is getting there. No one is getting there. Not, not now, not ever. And, and it appears again later in Revelation. But right now we see that that God's wrath and justice will be satisfied. And while he made a way through his mercy and his grace, he also drove them out. And he told them, you're going to, the rest of your life, you're going to sweat, you're going to work. Uh, women are going to deliver babies. It's going to be hard and difficult and painful. It was not intended that way in a perfect world. We need to understand it in a perfect world. But we need to understand, first and foremost, out of all of this, what we see because we're going to look for some common denominators here in the stories I'm going to share this morning, that their disobedience and defiance got them this judgment of God, but God spared them through this sacrifice. And in doing so, he made a promise, that promise of Christ to come. And so that's where we leave this story in Genesis 3. We move on. One of the other stories I want to share with you, also in Genesis, actually uh, three of the four are in Genesis. And this one's in Noah the Noah story. Okay? If we move from Genesis end of three, Genesis four is about Cain and Abel. And then we have more 
a history of the lineage and the ancestry moving into the 10 generations that existed between Adam and Noah, 10 generations. God was patiently watching to see what his created being did, his created beings, Adam and Eve and all their descendants. We know that Cain killed Abel. That was the first murder of the Bible. So what we see throughout these 10 generations, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And once sin enters the world through the deception of Satan, it continues to get worse. And we get to a point in Genesis 6 that God finally lost his patience. He's finally lost his patience. And in these verses I'm going to share with you, we see not only he lost his patience, but just grief and regret that almighty, perfect, holy God, the creator, has, is deeply remorseful and regrets having created man. Here's what he said in verses 5, 6, and 7. After some of the uh, other things going on where angels had come and, and had uh, relations with women and, and babies were born and just all kinds of things that... Um, that went on that were just evil and wicked in the sight of God. In verse Genesis 6, 5, we read this, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that, listen to this, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's all he thought of. We see people in our world today, in our nation today, that every thought and intention of their heart is evil and wicked for the destruction of, of people, of property, of our nation, of God tearing things down. Anything that relates to that? So in verse 6, he said, the Lord was sorry that he'd made man. He was sorry. He regretted the fact that he made man. Isn't that a troubling word? And, and further, it says he was grieved in his heart, that God was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from the man to the animals, to the creeping things, to birds that fly, and everything in the sky, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But here's the key one good man and his family. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then it goes on to say the generations of, of Noah. And it says in verse nine, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. And Noah walked with God. God Noah found favor. And we're told in verse nine, he was a righteous man, blameless and walked with God. And he had three sons. And he was the only one. He was the only one that God found in all the men, all the people, his created beings, that was good and righteous and, and walked with him and sought him out. And so God said, well, then I'm going to destroy everything and everyone except for Noah and his family. And those eight people, God spared and he kept them alive. And you know the story of the flood. We're not going to go into more detail on that. But I want you to understand that God, again, in his perfection and holiness, demands that of us. But he found Noah. And so Noah was a type of savior, if you will. Again, there are these types and types and foreshadowings and people who represent things going through that point ahead to Christ. The Old Testament points ahead to Christ. The New Testament points back to the cross of Christ. That's how it's set up in history. The pivot point is the cross of Christ. We'll get to that later. So Noah was different. He was a righteous man. He walked with God. He was blameless before God. Doesn't mean he was perfect. It's not saying that Noah was a, a perfect man. It's not giving us that, that there was actually someone else beside Jesus that was perfect. Just said he was blameless, that his, his desire was for God, that he walked with God, that he tried to please God, 
That's what we try to do as Christians, right? We're not perfect. We're not perfect, but we are saved and redeemed. And what are we going to see here? That God passed judgment on his creation and all his created beings and creatures, and he spared Noah and his family alone, those eight people. And so all of this, all of creation, all these things were destroyed by the flood. And you can read the details of the flood. We won't go over that now. But it was a mighty flood, 40 days and 40 nights, and went, uh, what was it, 15 cupids or so over the highest mountaintops of all, just to make sure that everything, every living creature was drowned and had no life left except for those eight and the Crete and the animals and the provision God made for them and every creature floating in that ark. A real ark, a real ark created in the most amazing ways. And if you just studied that, it would really encourage your faith and help you to believe that account. And it is a real biblical, actual flood, a real ark. And God did make a way. You see, he made a way. But he had to destroy all the sin and those who perpetuate the sin in the perfect world he had created that was now fallen. And I want to remind you, he still does that today, and he will do that today, and he will do it again. What he promised with the rainbow is he wouldn't do it with a flood. But he said, the world, this is coming. We get to the revelation as we fast forward all the way through the Bible. We're going to see that the end, there's a different end that's coming with a new heaven and a new earth coming for those who are born again in Christ. But right now, it's a pretty ominous picture. And so God, instead of destroying everyone and all of it, saying, I'm done with this, in his grace and his mercy, again, he, he um, spared Noah and his family to go back and start over again. And start over again. All right. The third story we're looking at is Abram and, and, and Abraham. Abram, Abraham. Abram was his name uh, in the first part. We introduced to Abram and Sarai. And as later, he's, it's changed to Abraham and Sarah. You can study the details on that. I want to just walk you through some of the things, again, that we're going to see that will point us to the motives of God for why he's doing this, why he's allowing this, why he's sparing this at all. Let's look at Abram and Abraham. This, Abraham's account, Abram begins in Genesis 11 and goes all the way through to Genesis 25 when he finally dies. In the middle of that, what we, the, the key points that I want to share with you very briefly are these. But first of all, they're the promises of God. That in Genesis 12 and 1 through 9, God makes a covenant, a covenant with Abraham that he will provide descendants. He says, and Abram is scratching his head thinking, well, how's that going to be? Sarah and I don't even have any children. We've tried for years and we just don't have, there's no heir. What do you mean there's going to be an heir? And God promised an heir and he was 75 years old when that happened. Okay, 75 years old. And he said, I'm getting older. Sarah's getting older. She was 10 years younger than him. Uh, we're too old to have kids. Basically, how's this going to happen? God promised and made a covenant with him and said that he would. And you know the story <laughs> of how impatient Sarah and Abraham went along with it, decided, look, this isn't working. God's made this promise of an heir, but 12 years or so had passed, no child. They'd given up hope. And in those days, you could take a servant or someone that was working for you, and you could take that woman and she could sleep with the man who was her master, have a child, and he could become an heir if there were no males to carry on the name and the lineage of the man. 
and his family. And so that's what happened. You know, the story of uh, Abraham and Hagar, they had the baby boy named Ishmael. He became the father of uh, many Arab tribes. He had 12 sons. We won't get into that right now. But they, they didn't wait on God. They didn't wait on God. And so this son is born, creates all kinds of issues between his mother, the servant, and Sarah, who now gets jealous that there is this heir, and this woman has favor. This servant has favor with her husband. She didn't like that at all. It becomes a really ugly situation. But God was faithful to do what he said he was going to do. And 25 years later in total, about 12 or 13 after Ishmael was born, God gives Sarah a son. She becomes pregnant and Isaac is born. And so we go from having this illegitimate son, if you will, in terms of not being born of of Abraham and Sarah, to having Isaac born when he's 100 years old. It took 25 years for God to fulfill that promise. But he ultimately did because God is true to his word. And so now they have this son, Isaac, who is the legitimate heir. And by the way, that's the rub today between the Muslim nations, those who came out of the Ishmael lines, and the Jews. They believe that uh, Ishmael is the legitimate heir son of Abraham. They believe all of the Bible up to this point, and they believe what it says, and they taught that. And, you know, the prophet Muhammad rewrote a lot of things, became the Quran and Um, I don't want to bunny trail here too much, but that became the rub, and it exists today between these uh, religious nations. This is where it started. Abraham and Sarah were impatient and would not wait on the Lord God to fulfill his promise. Does that sound familiar to any of you? It does to me. You get impatient and want to run ahead of God? Yeah, well, the outcome's not very good when that happens. God kept his promise, and it was wonderful, but it also created all kinds of problems and headaches then, and it still does today. And it still does today. But then we get to the most amazing part. In Genesis 22, verse 1, we read this. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, That's just that's shocking. It's shocking and amazing. It's beyond belief that after going through all of this, waiting 25 years for this heir, now this boy, teenager, young man, whatever age he was, God tells Abraham to go and sacrifice him as a human sacrifice just to test him and test his obedience and his love for God versus his love for his son. Because Abraham loved that son. He loved his son. He loved Ishmael as well. But the most amazing thing to me is what we read in the next verse. God tells him to go do that. And in the very next verse, we don't read any quibbling, arguing. Wait a second, God, what do you mean? The kinds of things that I would have done that you probably would have done. The very next verse after God gives him that command says this. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. He split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. He was obedient. This is the most amazing example of obedience outside of Christ going to the cross that we have in the Bible. And there's so many parallels here between Christ and the cross 
because of the wood going up the hill, mountain, the hill, if you will, like Calvary, all those things. It's a beautiful study. But right now what we see is that God told him to go and make a burnt offering, sacrifice to him, just like pagans did to their gods where they would sacrifice children. We read later on the children of Israel got caught up in that too and would sacrifice their children to false gods. Here the real God, Jehovah, the only God, told him to go sacrifice his son to test him. And Abraham just got up and went to do it. Just got up and went to do it. That is an amazing, amazing study of obedience to God. Regardless, God tells you to do something, you go do it. And he was faithful to go do that. All right. So that's the most incredible example of obedience. Now we step in again and we see an example of God's mercy and his grace once again. His mercy and his grace. I'm in Genesis 22, verse 11. We get to the point where God, Abraham is just about to do that. In verse 10, it says, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he's ready, poised, ready to kill him. And the angel of the Lord said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. I know that you fear God. The fear of the Lord. We did a series on that several months ago. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord spared Isaac because God saw that Abraham and his obedience loved his son, but loved God enough and feared God enough that reverential fear ought to know that he is who he says he is. And he will provide again if he needs to, that God stayed his hand. God stayed his hand. And not only did he stay his hand, one more verse in this story, or two more verses. It's over here in verse 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram was caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh. That's where we get that name, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord God will provide. And he did. He provided the ram for the sacrifice. You see that amazing story that gives me chills when I think about it. Once again, we see God, for whatever reason, stepping in, staying the hand of Abraham, and then providing the sacrifice. So there's his mercy on display, and his grace on display, and his provision on display. And again, I want you to hold on to that. The last piece of this story is simply the history of the nation of Israel. And I'm going to move through this with such speed. But the point is not to tell you the whole story of the Jews from uh, Genesis 25 all the way through Malachi 4. That's the balance of the Old Testament. From Genesis 25, when Abraham goes home to be with the Lord, well, then we have Isaac and then Jacob and Esau, and all the way through those stories, going through the Moses and the Exodus and Joshua and then all the judges and the prophets and all those things, the history of the nation of Israel. And by the way, let me back up here one second. Israel, the name came from Jacob. Jacob was the younger son of the twins who should not have had the birthright, but um, he stole or was sold the birthright from Esau because he was the older twin, born first. And it's a very unusual, strange story. Jacob later, in a, in a dream, in a vision, whatever it was, wrestling with the angel of the Lord, which is a theophany, meaning God himself, and he prevailed. But God put his hip out of socket. He limped the rest of his life. But after that, God changed his name from Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel, 
meaning you wrestle with the Lord and prevailed. And so Israel, the nation, carried the name of Jacob from that point forth, and it still does today. So that's where Israel comes from. That's where the name comes from. It came out of Jacob, not Father Abraham, Father Isaac, but Jacob, and it carries on through as a nation or a people uh, even to this day. However, that story for all those books of the rest of the Old Testament is one of these. It's a cycle, and it's a cycle. The, the Jews were obedient to God and his law, and he blessed them, and they prospered greatly. They're heading for the promised land. He promised to give them this land, that all they had to do was go in and take it and occupy it, and that they disobeyed him. And all along the way, we know all those stories of disobedient. They created other gods, the calves. Uh, they intermingled with other people and their gods, and that was idolatrous, and it was adultery. And so God would punish them and destroy part of them, but not all of them. And they would repent and confess and come back to the Lord and offer all the sacrifices he told them to do. And it's just a cycle. And if you read from Genesis all the way on through to Malachi, that's what you read. This cycle of obedience, blessing, disobedience, punishment, obedience, blessing. It is a cycle. And throughout, God keeps expressing frustration with them, saying, listen, I am tired of this. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, he calls them a bunch of whores. He said, you've played the harlot. You are whores to me. You are worshiping. You are living with, sleeping with false gods. That was adultery. Okay, That was spiritual adultery. And God called them out and he called them these names and he meant it. He even had one of his prophets go marry a whore, marry um, you know, someone that was professionally a prostitute. Okay, That was um, uh, Haggai. Haggai married Gomer was her name and did it twice. It was just an example. God's trying to show them. He's trying to spare them. And yet they continue to do what they did. And they split into two different kingdoms after David and after Solomon. And it's a terrible story. You keep reading this. It's amazing. But God keeps going after them. And so he sends prophets and all the stories of the prophets from the major ones from Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the the um, minor prophets, Hosea, Jose, uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the minor prophets as they're called. They all were there to warn them and say, listen, God is serious about this sin business. And if you don't stop, he's going to utterly destroy you and take your nation away. Yeah, right, 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 right. Well, we know that he did that. We know that he did that. He finally said enough. And so as we move through a couple thousand years, we get down to 722 BC and the Assyrians, who are the, the world power of that time. This is all world history as well as biblical history. And they ultimately destroyed the northern kingdom. Uh, they called it Israel, but it was the northern 10 tribes. And they were no more. They never had a good king, by the way. And then in 586 BC, 140 years or so later, Babylon now had conquered Assyria and become the world power. And Babylon, after numerous I guess you'd call it conquerings. They, it happened over a period of years from 605 B.C. And then finally in the 586 B.C. when they went in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And so the southern kingdom now is utterly gone and there is no nation of Israel for over 2,600 years. You know what I said? There's no nation of Israel, no God's people, God's own people, the only chosen nation in the history of mankind. There's none of that for 2,600 years. And then in 1948, and God's timing, for whatever reason, after all these millions of Jews are slaughtered in the Holocaust, in 1948, they're allowed to come back into a nation of Zion, which is now Israel that we know today. Don't understand the timing. Don't understand what God's doing. 
but I do understand his motive. And so I'm going to wrap it up with this. We've come through these stories quickly, and we've seen these evidences of God intervening and trying to save and redeem his people. And so the question is why? What's the motive? What's behind all that? And it's a one word answer. It's the love of God. It is the love of God. It is the love of God that pours out his mercy, that provides grace, that comes and tries to redeem his people and bring them back again and again and again. And let me just read you a few examples here from our stories today. The love of God was present during creation. His love brought us into being. We're created out of his love. The love of God spared Adam and Eve from eternal life in a fallen world. Yeah, in other words, he could have left them there in, in the Garden of Eden. They'd have lived forever in that fallen state. But there was even mercy in his love in letting them go out physically and die. That sounds very, very strange. But it's part of the mercy and grace of God poured out from his love that does that, you see. He promised a Savior right there after that sin happened. We talked about that. He promised a Savior would come and ultimately defeat our fierce enemy, Satan, and all his fallen angels. The love of God saved Noah. The love of God saved Noah and his family from utter destruction in the flood. God could have said, I'm wiping it all out completely and starting over again. I'm not sparing anyone. Mankind does not deserve it. But he found this one man who's called good and honored God and walked with God. And the love of God spared Noah and his family. And the love of God stayed the hand of Abraham to keep him from killing his son, his only son. He said, your only son whom you love, your only begotten son. Does that language sound familiar? Sure it does, because later God in his love would not spare his only begotten son. We'll come to that next week. The love of God spared and reconciled his sinful people for generation after generation after generation for thousands of years until he finally said enough. And even then, when he allowed the nation of Israel to be completely overrun, Jerusalem destroyed in his own temple, the beautiful temple that he instructed David and then Solomon to build, was completely destroyed, completely destroyed. But God spared the people. He spared a remnant of people. If you're born again in Christ, you're my brother, my sister. God's motive is pure and it's simple. It's love. It is his love. And I'm going to close with this because I want to make sure this gets understood. Too many people today stop there with the love of God. Everybody wants the love of God. And so it is a tripping point, if you will. And I know that sounds funny, but unfortunately, some people stop there. And the love of God wasn't a, a stopping point. We don't stop there and say, man, I, I love the love of God. God is love. John said that in 1 John 4. He did. But it's out of context. It's out of context, you see. We can't just camp on that one thing because we love it. Everybody loves the love of God, wants God to love us. And yet we don't want what the Bible teaches as the full counsel of God. Because I've already talked about God's mercy and his grace, his wrath, his justice, his anger, these things. It's all the full counsel of God. Love is a part of that. It clearly is. I've explained how the love of God has worked throughout biblical history into today, that is the love of God. But God is also this full counsel of other attributes that we don't have time to get into all of those today, but there are many. And so what we need to understand is this is the God of the Bible. This is Jehovah God of the Bible 
who has many attributes and characteristics of his perfect personality. Holiness is one of those. Holiness. He's holy. We're supposed to be holy. He's perfect. He said, you be perfect. How do we do that? You see, how do we do that? We have to understand the full counsel of God. And so I wrap this up today by telling you that God is love and that his motive is absolutely love and he loves his people. God loves everyone. He loves unconditionally, but it doesn't stop there. That's the beginning of the story. That's not the end of the story. And so next week, we're going to get into the message that came out of the love of God and the reason that it had to come because it goes beyond the love of God. That's what began. And we're going to talk about how God expresses that in ways, the ultimate way. And we'll get into that next week. Let me close. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the love that's been demonstrated throughout your, the history of the world. The fact that it even still exists because of our sin and our fallen nature, our rebellion and all the things that we have done. Thank you for the love that you poured out to us in Christ Jesus, our risen Savior. So Lord God, I pray that you'd begin to open the hearts and minds of people that will hear this watch it, read it, however they receive it, to know that this is your motive behind it, but it is just the beginning and not the end of the story. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.